first let me uh, express my gratitude to all, starting by you, to all my friends who organized my visit here and again to emphasize my honor to be here with Tom. You know, I discovered Tom only through criticism when some people started to criticize my work and one of the critical points were, but what you are telling is just repeating the old stuff already developed. Uh, I wouldn't like to insult you to go into how many years uh, ago. And, uh, but my point was, what is bad in this? I think, what is bad in this? Why always this new, new, new? Maybe the most difficult and creative thing is truly to repeat what was already said. I agree here, and it has great theological consequences with someone that uh, we both like, like uh, Kierkegaard and somebody else who maybe we don't both like in the same way, like Gilles Deleuze, who said very nicely that everything really new appears in the form of a repetition. Take the modernity. Who are the idiots of early modernity? Those who simply trusted, oh, new technology, those cheap liberals. But it is Pascal whose problem was precisely how to remain orthodox in the conditions of modernity that really generated something new. We read today Pascal, we don't read those cheap apologists. So again, it's my honor to be reduced to your, not even successor, but repetitor, almost in the musical sense, you know, co-repetitor in the opera, and so on. Okay, so uh, again, being an old-fashioned Marxist, I like this... Westerns from the late 40s, where you know the good guys are in white, the bad guys are in black, not too complex. So I like the enemy. The enemy will be personally a friend today. I appreciate him. It will be the representatives of so-called postmodern deconstructive theological term. Again, I have great respect to them, but I think that's the line that separates us. What defines the so-called postmodern theological turn? Here is a quote from a book co-written by uh, Jack Caputo and Gianni Vatimo. It's the question, how do we get from the post-Christian, post-Holocaust, and largely secular death of God, theologies of the 60s, to the postmodern return of religion? The answer is that the death of God, the secularization of modern Europe, somehow clears the slate, by obliterating the moral metaphysical god of ontotheology and thus paradoxically opens up the space for the new authentic post-metaphysical religion, uh, Christianity, or maybe not even Christianity, focused on agape. In exemplary of this attitude is John Caputo's own religion, maybe the ultimate formulation of the Deridean deconstructive messianism. Caputo is horrified at the very idea of a religious dogma, of the notion of a God who decided to address a particular group at a particular moment, according them a privileged access to absolute truth. But in this way, by Caputo, I think religion is reduced to a belief, to a simple minimal belief that our miserable reality is not all there is. The ultimate, that the ultimate truth is elsewhere, that there is another world possible, a totally deontological promise, hope of redemption to come, which this hope is betrayed by any ontological positivization. My question, very naive one, what then happens here with 
you know, in this post-metaphysical, deconstructive, uh, post-secular, however you call it, thought, where, if I may mock it in a very friendly way, the message is, of course God is there, there is no grandfather sitting up there, but, and now I'm consciously mocking back, in this void, from this very absence, someone, a voice, is addressing us, an unconditional call, and so on, and so on. My point is, what happens here with the basic Christian motive of the death of God? What is allowed to die in this deconstructive Christianity? As expected, only the temporary, contingent, historic specification of God. A quote from Jack Caputo. So my theology of the event is prepared to concede, if not exactly the death of God, at least the mortality or historical contingency of the name of God. The separability in principle of the event from the name, like a spirit leaving a lifeless body behind. For me, it's difficult to miss the irony of these lines. If you look into Caputo's book, a couple of pages earlier, he violently attacks as supersessionist, potentially racist, the Paulinian idea of opposing spirit and letter, as, again, potentially anti-Semitic. But here, all of a sudden, we get the metaphor of the dead letter to be dropped so that the spirit survives. In this deconstructive way, every particular taking sides, every instantiation of the divine is relativized, has to be taken and practiced with ironic distance. Whenever we focus on a particular formulation of the divine, as we put it in French, French ce n'est pas ça, this is not that. Within this state, space, I see no place for the paradox of Christian incarnation. In Christ, this miserable individual, in this miserable individual, we see God himself, so that his death is the death of God himself. I cannot emphasize enough this point, how, and Hegel saw this clearly, and after Hegel, Kierkegaard, this properly comical comedy aspect of incarnation. You know that Kierkegaard, in some of his, I forgot, I'm sorry, where, openly uses this uh, 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 comparison with theater, you know, like fanfares at a court arrive a majestic king, and then behind the curtain a small ridiculous dog or a dwarf enters. That's for Kierkegaard, the incarnation. We, uh, uh, the properly Christian choice is the leap of faith by means of which we take the risk to fully engage in a singular instantiation as the truth embodied with no ironic distance, no fingers crossed. Christ stands for the very singular point, as I see it excluded by Caputo, a direct short circuit, identity even, between a positive singularity and the divine event. This is what in German idealism or Hegel is called the absurdity of infinite judgment, or as Hegel puts it two times in his Lessons on the History of Religion, the monstrosity of Christ. This mere miserable individual, nobody uh, crucified between two bandits and so on, this is God himself. Even Caputo pro uh, professes his love for Kierkegaard. But where is here Kierkegaard's central insight? His insistence on the paradox of Christianity. Eternity is only accessible through time through the belief in Christ's incarnation as a temporal event. 
How then, after admitting that every figure of God is culturally conditioned, how can we go on praying? Caputo's colleague, I also appreciate him very much, he's my friend as a person, uh, uh, Gianni Vatimo, answers to this question, namely to the question that if all Everything we say of God, all our doctrines are just temporary approximations which we shouldn't ontologize. God remains in otherness and so on. How then can we go on praying? Sorry, but what I will read you now, although it's meant as a noble, gentle thought, is for me, and I'm an atheist, I don't, uh, uh, I don't uh, conceal it, it's filled up with an ex probably unintended but explosive objective cynicism. Here I quote the passage. This is Vatimo. When I pray, I know precisely that the words I'm using are not intended to convey some literal truth. I pray these words more for the love of a tradition than I do for the love of some mythic reality. It is like the relationship you have with an aged relative. Sorry, it means what? God is a stupid old man just to plug it. But much deeply, I think, what we do here is make one step towards the cynical functioning of ideology today. This is how we usually believe today. Nobody dares almost to believe in the first person. You say, oh, you know, it's, uh, usually it's the cultural relativization of belief. I don't really believe, but... I don't want to disappoint my children, or it's my life world, and so on, and so on. Things, of course, are here much more mysterious. I claim that we believe, maybe even more than ever, but in a wrong way. We believe objectively. We believe through the mechanisms which we don't take seriously, which is why, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but it's worth repeating, my favorite model of how we believe today and also how ideology functions today is. Again, I'm sorry for repeating myself, if some of you know this joke, you know the famous Niels Bohr adventure. A friend visited him in countryside and saw a horseshoe above the entrance and asked, you know, in Europe, I don't know how it's here, it's a superstition, uh, a superstitious item allegedly preventing evil spirits to enter the house. And the friend asked him, but wait a minute, you're a scientist. Do you believe in this bullshit? Bohr's answer, wonderful one. I'm not stupid, of course I don't believe in it. So why do I have it here? Because I heard that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's our standard religion. Beliefs circulate, you don't have to take them seriously, and so on and so on. The lesson is the, that we believe much more than we think. So against this kind of cynical relativization, I claim that the only way to redeem the subversive core of Christianity is to return to the death of God theology, to repeat its gesture today. What gets lost in the soft, soft postmodern theology is the dimension indicated by the very name death of God, the traumatic core of the divine kenosis, of God's self-emptying. In postmodern theology, kenosis affects only us, humans. It turns out to be the deconstructive drawing of the line of separation between the unconditional promise and its contingent instantiations. In and through it, the divine dimension is emptied of its ontotheological fetishization. What is missing here, from my perspective, is something on which you insist, all good Kegelian, we insist. It is that kenosis and this is for me the very core of Christianity. If you take this away, Christianity is another version of paganism. 
that kenosis is not just a process of us. This is a very Hegelian top. This is topic. This is what Hegel meant when he said to grasp the absolute not only a substance but a subject. Our alienation from God is at the same time the self-alienation of God himself. What we do with God is what God is doing to himself. Which is why I hope you notice this. In Christianity, our access to God is a totally different one than in other religions. It's not God is up there and somehow through some stupid ascetic self-weeping or whatever, somehow you can get closer to the guy. No. What you do is that at the very point when you feel totally emptied, alienated from God, you discover that your identity is with Christ on the cross, which is when God felt abandoned, you know, the famous Father, why have you forsaken me, from himself. It is when you see how, experience how your abandonment by God overlaps by the divine self, self-abandonment. This means something, among other things, very precise, that although I give a very materialist reading of Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit uh, 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 does not mean the simple Feuerbachian Marxist point that, oh, okay, we discover there is no substantial God and it's just that God is just a collective ideological projection of us humans and so on, so that all we have to do, you know, this big Feuerbachian Marxist topic is to reappropriate the alienated substance. No, precisely this double movement of how what we experience as our abandonment from God is the divine kenosis itself. This is the Hegelian core of it. Now, as to ethical consequences from this, now I come to the political part. Uh, I think we should really give this to all children to read. If I were to run a kind of a, a Marxist, Hegelian, Christian, totalitarian state, I hope a secret dream of all of us, uh, <laughs> One of the first readings wouldn't be sayings of President Mao or what, but uh, the book of Job. I think this is the zero level, the first example that I know of critique of ideology. Why? Okay, we all know what happens. Things turn out very bad for Job. He loses his animals, goats, women, and so on in that order, I think it's described. But then something happens. Remember, the three theological friends come. What's their point? It's not so much to convince Job that he is guilty, but to convince him that his suffering has some deeper meaning. They are, I think, ideologists at its zero level. One says, God is just so. If you suffer, you must have done something wrong, even if you don't know what. The other guy says, uh, okay, maybe God is just uh, uh, testing you, whatever. But the point is, it has your suffering some deeper meaning. And then something unheard of happens, as you probably know. God appears at the end and says, no, everything that the three ideologists said is wrong, everything that Job said is right. This resistance to meaning is crucial when we are confronting potential or actual catastrophes, from AIDS to ideological, sorry, ecological disasters to Holocaust. They don't have a deeper meaning. And here things get even more complex. But then at the end, of course, we all know, Job nonetheless confronts God with 
What about my suffering? I claim, and I, here I follow my favorite uh, Catholic theologist, Gilbert Keith, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, I claim that the standard, at least to my knowledge, predominant reading, is totally wrong. Namely, the reading which reads that God's apparently boastful explosion. You remember, but who are you to say, who were you when I was created, all those unicorn monsters whatsoever? It's usually read as this assertion of the radical gap separating God from man. The way I read it, following Chesterton, is exactly in the opposite way. That God's message is, you think you are in trouble, but look, the whole universe is one big mess. Even I don't know what's happening. It's kind of a God being overwhelmed by the mess he created, God at a loss. Uh, and now we come to the crucial point. Uh, so what, for me, dies on the cross? Here I follow Hegel. When he says what dies on the cross is not an earthly representative of God. That's specific to In other religions, when you deal with sons, messenger, it's he is up there, we are here, he sends a messenger, we people crucify him, screw him up, screw things up, so then, okay, son, come back, maybe in thousand years I'll send you again, whatever. No, as Hegel emphasizes, it's precisely that God of the beyond itself which dies. What does this mean? Uh, you, I hope, remember what I find the most disgusting metaphor that I can imagine of theology. Uh, the metaphor of a painting. You know, the idea is when you encounter evil, you think it's evil. It's, it's like when you watch a painting from too close and you just see a disturbing stain. And then the idea is withdraw to a proper distance and you will see how what wrongly appeared to you as evil really contributes to global harmony and so on and so on. I have problems with this. I mean, like, it would be nice to say how, oh, why do we bother so much with Gulag, Holocaust, or let's not limit ourselves just to this, or what happened with Congo and what incidentally is happening in Congo today. These are just... These are just events which, if you withdraw and look at the total harmony, they contribute to the global peace. I mean, the God who needs such an element to impose his hammer on me would be the good old Satan that you mentioned. So what I'm saying is that I claim that if there is a spiritual meaning of Christ's death, it's precisely his abdication from this role. Christ is no longer old guy the death of Christ stands for the death of God who somehow guarantees that at the end things will turn out okay. You know, like we may experience a confused reality, but somehow there is old guy up there pulling the strings and so on, guaranteeing the uh, happy ending. No, it's precisely a God who fearlessly throws himself, as it were, into his own creation, not playing this dirty game of when you complain to him, Oh, things are screwed up. Oh, no, you have to see the whole picture. No, no, no. The truth is in detail. Let me tell you uh, an a couple of anecdotes now, very brief ones. I read an anecdote about Harold Pinter, who was 
a couple of years ago, before his death, obviously, thrown out of a reception at the U.S. Embassy in Turkey, when a U.S. diplomat was praising the Turkish political progress. Pinter evoked the brutal torture of the Kurdish guerrillas by the Turkish military. The diplomat responded that there are always two sides of each story. You know, you cannot just focus on death. You, you should see the broader picture. And then Pinter cut him short with but not if your balls are wired to a battery and shot through by electricity. Then there is no broader picture. And I claim that this is Christ's gesture. There is no broader picture. Re Allow me to make this point absolutely clear, to repeat two stories which I really like because they are, I think, Christology and its purest, uh, which I used in one of my books. I always like political joke to illustrate theological point. But from when I was young, you remember, there was an era when there were monsters like Richard Nixon, Leonid Brezhnev, and Erich Honecker, Honecker in East Germany. The story is one of the stupid stories, you know. They all confront God and are allowed to ask God one question. Nixon asked what will become from out of United States uh, 30, 50 years from now. God says oh, it will be a Soviet Republic. Nixon be careful how I literally formulate it, Nixon turns around and starts to cry. Then Brezhnev asks, Vito, oh, so what will become with my Soviet Union? God answers, sorry, guy, no better. Soviet Union will be a Chinese colony. Again, Brezhnev turns around and starts to cry. Then Honecker, German Democratic Republic, asks, oh, so what will be with my beloved GDR? You can guess the answer. God turns around and starts to cry. <laughs> this is the proper, when you fall in, you know, you have the series, you think God is out, he falls into it. Or to give you a similar example, my favorite political joke from there. In the late 30s, Lubyanka, KGB prison, three guys found themselves in the same cell and start to explain to each other their position. The first guy says, uh, I was condemned to five years for opposing Popov, Popov, a top nomenclatura guy. The second guy says, ah, but the party line then changed, and I was condemned to 10 years for supporting Popov. Finally, the third one says, yes, you can guess. I'm here for life, and I am Popov. <laughs> this is the Christological moment. You got it, how the apparent exception up there falls, uh, how to put it, falls into the series. So, not to get too far into this, just to conclude. So my point is not to be an atheist Christian in the sense of saving the, the Christian message in atheist form. My point is a much stronger one here. Not only is atheism the truth of Christianity, but one can only be a true atheist by passing through the Christian experience. All other atheisms continue to rely on some form of the big other. Stalinism, you have the big other of history which guarantees the meaning of our acts and so on and so on. So what happens for me with the death of Christ is what? Remember, and that's crucial, after the death of Christ, there is no happy return or whatever. It's Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is what? It's a collective of believers. I use the word collective, not community. An egalitarian collective of believers with no guarantee in the big other. Basically, with the death of Christ, the big other, any historical guarantee, spiritual, whatever, ontological, is, is, uh, disappears. For me, the death of Christ means 
Not that the ultimate message of Christianity is we are condemned to our freedom. It's not we can rely, we can, we should trust God. It is God should trust, God trusts us. Uh, now I'm approaching the end of time, so I will just recapitulate what I wanted to say in the, first I want to interpret from here, from this crucial notion of Holy Ghost as the community, egalitarian community of believers, the question of violence. This Holy Spirit, of course, is an engaged collective. This is another crucial Christian experience for me, that truth can be at the same time universal and engaged. How to read from here, I always like to embarrass my theological friends with just reading them those passages that I, of course, as an old crazy leftist, admire most in the New Testament, you know, all those horrifying statements by Christ. Do not think I came to bring, to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, to bring peace but the sword. or I have come to cast fire upon the earth, or if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple and so on and so on. How to read this? It's incredible. I'm quite amused at how I get the whole series of excuses. Like my st the standard procedure is that my theological opponents who pretend to be good Orthodox Christians all the time turn into some kind of cheap historicist deconstructionist. They say, you know, you should understand the historical circumstances there and so on and so on. Then, then the most blasphemous version I find is the one of uh, trying to relativize. It doesn't mean you really have to hate your parents. Just, you shouldn't love them too much. Sorry, that's a blasphemy for me. It means, you know, God, some kind of perverse, obscene old guy. Okay, okay, you can love your wife, father, but I want to be sure that you love me more. No? And so on, all that stuff. I think the only way to read this scandalous world is precisely along the lines of revolutionary violence, what uh, Walter Benjamin developed as uh, divine violence, and so on and so on. It's not hatred as kind of a pseudo-dialectical opposite to love. It's hatred out of love. This is the wonderful message of Kierkegaard in his works of love, where he says that a true Christian doesn't only love his neighbors, he is ready to hate, even kill his neighbors out of love. To sustain this tension is, for me, what we need today. And this brings me now really to conclude to what this means for the social order. It means something for the reason of which I think apocalyptic Christianity is still the ultimate horizon today, which we need it more than ever. The idea is a very simple one. This is for me what Christ means with hate your father, mother. Not literally hate them, kill them, but hate them precisely in their symbolic institutional function as mother, father, and so on. The message is a wonderful one. It is that social hierarchic order is not the ultimate reality. There is a space for an egalitarian collective which, as it were, cuts across it. And not just in this Buddhist way of, of in nirvana we are all the same. No, no, no. We can be all the same here on this earth. We can organize ourselves as the same here. And again, this universality is not a, 
an abstract universality, which is wrongly attributed to Hegel in the sense of the universality of a hierarchic order, of, you know, like, uh, you as a mother are a good mother, he is a good master, you are a good obeying uh, kid, and so we are, everyone has their own place. This is for me, are you aware how revolutionary here Christianity is? This is for me the ultimate message, to use the fashionable terms. If there ever was a non-holistic religion, and if there is a thing that I hate is so-called holistic approach, it's Christianity. It's not the religion of to establish harmonious order. It's the religion of struggle, of imbalance. To be universal means to fight. The only true universality is the universality of struggle. Which is why I think, although we should do all possible for the poor people and so on, if you want to understand what Christian love is, you should first understand what it is not. It's not charity. Charity I really hate. As a Christian, although atheist Christian, my, the, one of the figures of devil today for me is Starbucks coffee. Why? Did you notice the ideology when you enter it? It's their propaganda. When they, all the time, it's the same message. When you buy a cup of our coffee, you don't buy only a cup of coffee. You buy the whole world experience. You know, 2% two, two go to some Guatemala children to educate them for water and so on and so on, all that stuff. This kind of a, a charity manipulation, how does it function? This is false love. Why? Because when you see this disgusting poster, this is anti-Christianity at its purest. You know the poster of some disfigured, starving black child, and with the words, with the price for a, cup of, a couple of cup of cappuccinos, you can save this kid's life. But if you read between the lines, what's the message? The message is, there are people starving, we exploit them, and so on, but for a price of a couple of cappuccinos, we can make you feel good. So that... You don't have really to worry, not only this, but you can even feel good that you are doing something. Don't underestimate this ideological functioning today. As a true Christian, you should even doubt, I think, all this organic food bullshit. Listen, when you see that uh, so-called organic apples, which are half rotten but, but cost three times more, do you really buy them because you believe that they are less poisonous? I think you are here a uh, sane skeptic. You think? Maybe. But why then do you buy them? It makes you feel good. You see, even when I'm buying apples, I'm part of a larger movement. I'm hoping Mother Earth to get better. I'm, you know, it's, we are literally more and more buying, buying ideology. Now, believe me or not, really to conclude, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 so uh, what I am saying is that... Uh, the, the legacy of Christianity for me, the death of God legacy, is neither this kind of a Nietzschean positive or negative narrative in the sense of once there was an authentic God whom we lost. Now you can read this as a liberating message in the sense of, oh, finally we got rid of God, death of God, good riddance, and so on. Or the more pessimistic Heideggerian or others reading, God abandoned us, now we should wait, pray, prepare for God to come back. No, it is, God is definitely dead, and, but this is a reversal, but never forget this. A reversal in the guise of Holy Spirit. In Holy Spirit, Christ, Christ says what the secret is. Don't remember when he says to his pupils, uh, 
when there will be the love between the two of you, I will be there. So don't fall into this fetishist trap of searching around, where is this jerk? No, you don't need... In your search, in the collective, he is already here. He is alive if you struggle with it. In one of my books, The Monstrosity of Christ, I quote, I hope you know it, otherwise you don't deserve to be Americans, that wonderful old labor song, Joe Hill. You know when? Joe Hill appears to an ordinary worker, and the worker says, but you died. And Joe Hill said, no, whenever workers strike in Maine, I am there, and so on and so on. That's the Holy Ghost. So, to conclude, please believe me, just this. Uh, what God do we get here? It's rather like the God from an old Bolshevik joke from the 1920s. This is crucial because at that point such joke was still possible when they still believed that communist propagandists can be effective, good. Uh, about a communist propagandist who suddenly collapsed and died and, of course, after his death found himself in hell. But there, being a good propagandist, he quickly convinced the guards to let him go out and to heaven. When, after a week or so, the devil notices the absence on his usual regular control, uh, notices the absence of this guy, he quickly went up, took the elevator up, paid a visit to God, demanding that he returns to hell what belongs to the devil. Uh, however, immediately after the devil addressed God with, listen, my Lord, God interrupted him. First, I am not a Lord, but a comrade. Second, are you crazy talking to fictions? I don't exist. And third, be cut it short, otherwise I'll miss my party cell meeting. This is the God we need today. A God who wholly becomes man, a comrade among us, crucified together with two social outcasts. A God who not only doesn't exist, but also himself knows this, accepts his cannotic erasure, entirely passing over into the love which binds members of the Holy Ghost, which, as you know, Holy Ghost is an entity which has different names, like Revolutionary Party, Emancipatory Collective, and so on and so on. In this sense, I'm unconditionally Christian, and I think that in a quite naive way, only this basic Christian, how should I call it, spiritual structure, this incredibly important idea of an emancip egalitarian emancipatory collective which breaks with all this traditional pagan bullshit of the wheel of justice where, you know, like where the highest value is to be or do what is your duty at your proper place. Like, you know, you are too much excess. The traditional justice, as we know, is the justice of proper measure, as Aristotle put it. Catastrophe is when you want too much, too much power, too much pleasures, then fate punishes you, balance is reestablished. The message of Christ is exactly the opposite one, the non-holistic extreme one. No, we can cut, cut it short, we can totally destabilize the universe. Thanks very much for your patience. I will do a communist gesture of God. Did you notice, sorry, it's my old joke, but I cannot resist telling it. Did you notice in old Stalinist and fascist documentaries 
how the leader, fascist leader is applauded, but he never applauds himself. He just receives the, by Stalin and other great luminaries. Did you notice how when in the Central Committee they are applauded, they always join the applause. Like, you know, it's not me, I'm just one of you, and so on and so on. Only in this sense, I'm a Stalinist, and I proudly applaud with you. <laughs> are these on? They are. Great. I think we can stay seated now. Uh, Dr. Altizer, do you have a response to... No, no, Dr. no, no. Uh, very good. Dr. Zizek, do you have a response to Altizer's paper in particular? Sorry? Do you have a response to his paper in particular? Then we'll no, I have just one friendly... Uh, don't be afraid, it will not be another ten minutes. Literally one sentence. Uh, I like your very dialectical play with God, Satan, and so on. I just hope you agree that it's crucial here to resist any Gnostic dualistic temptation. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not all this absolutely boring, disgusting, you know, God and devil and then making... It's not this. It's, you, it's not this. I can sleep calmly. I don't have to mobilize KGB to investigate you like... It's not Gnostic dualism. Okay. <laughs> just wanted to be sure. <laughs> His key term for distinguishing um, this kind of uh, coincidentio oppositorum from dualism is dialectic. So when he yeah. says dialectic, it's absolutely non-dualistic. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is so. why we should also strictly oppose Hegel to this Jungian obscurantist idea that, you know, you should avoid one extreme and the other extreme and find a proper balance. Although this is usually taken as dialectic, it's not. Right. Uh, we have an audience microphone, I understand. I can't see it uh, there. So uh, I'll call up now uh, the people on our dance list, and our first speaker will be Carl Raschke. Is it in the middle? There's two. Thanks. Another try. Well, I was going to uh, respond, but I think uh, I'll try to summarize Slavoj here. Uh, I like this Stalinist point. You know better than me what I wanted to say, and you will tell it to me now. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I, I don't know. You, actually, you know better what I wanted to say than I could ever imagine. Uh, but I want to talk about what this means for those of us who want to think or speak theologically. And I'm saying that what we're hearing here in the bringing back the discourse of the death of God is a new theological materialism, or what Zizek himself calls transcendental materialism. <clears throat> that in the puppet and the dwarf, he says, is essentially unambigu unambiguously Christian. A, a theological materialism that is, quote, the subversive kind of Christianity accessible only to a materialist approach. And that's Zizek's claim, and in, indirectly also Altizer's uh, claim, as well as that of all the death of God theologians over the last 40 years. Now, this claim is ob obviously counterintuitive, but that's not the main point. If transcendental materialism is not simply an inversion of historical Christian idealism, Platonism for the mob a la Nietzsche, and it sure, certainly is not, what is it? What's really at stake here? 
Overall, Zizek is saying that this subversive kernel has something profoundly do, to do with the force of the negative, that the Hegelian dialectic rips off from the critical valency of Kant's critical philosophy uh, and is engendered in the overdetermined dialectical materialism of revolutionary Marxism. Both philosophy and theology, therefore, are in the business of tarrying with the negative. The title of Zizek's uh, most important book, in my mind at least, as well as one of Hegel's most important phrases, which Hegel himself rips right out of the mouth of Mephistopheles in Goethe's Faust. Hegel's for violin, for violin or tarrying is the same for violidok of Mephistopheles, the spirit that denies. So what does Christianity deny, historically speaking, other than the world? It... <clears throat> What does it deny besides what the Germans called the Gegebenheit of everyday matters, materialism in the crudest sense? As Zizek shows, Christianity powerfully denies as well the possibility of the singular event as the death of God on the cross ever being sublated, alfgehoben in Hegelian words, into a concretized universal. The death of God is the key metonymical moment for the radical subjectification of God himself, opening up the obgrunt, the abyss, the groundless grounding of all transcendental thinking, of Zizek's theological materialism. This theological materialism, I submit, is the guiding thread, but I would challenge all God-is-dead thinkers to think beyond this well-established grounding of theologies as secular, radical, material, transcendental material, or whatever because genuine theological thinking requires no grounding, as Zizek is pushing us to recognize, even a groundless one. It has its own jouissance, um, as opposed to the countless varieties of the theological objet petit a in everything from post-liberal to radical orthodox to so-called deconstructionist or constructionist, all these what Zizek might call hystericized theologies. Here's where Zizek should take himself, I would finally say it his own word. He should consider, should consider taking a real leap a la Kierkegaard from Hegel to becoming a materialist knight of faith, a leap by virtue of the absurd from Schelling to Sartre, from the dead singular corpus dei on the cross to the surreal experience of enjoying a messianic banquet of raw fish with the true not-one-all on the beach at Galilee. I mean tearing not just with the negative, but with the absurd faith. That is, as Kierkegaard might say, uh, the absurd acceptance and appropriation of this impossible, illusory truth that for Zizek himself renders all truth ineffectual in the subject's relationship to the singular. Through the event of the eternal as temporal. This dreadful freedom of absurd faith is another way of what Zizek in the fragile absolute portrays as the perverse betrayal. In this case, a betrayal of theology for the sake of the singularity that is inexorable divine love. Not, as Nietzsche would say, Dionysus versus the crucified, but the jouissance of faith versus the trauma of God's death. That is theological materialism. It is also the formula for a globalized 
global Christian, post-identitarian, post-secular, post-constructionist, post-deconstructionist, post-liberal, post-evangelical, post-postmodern, theologically political revolution of the saints. In Lacan's sense of minimal difference, the saints of minimal difference. In other words, those who, as Paul says, will rule the world. Thank you, Dr. Rashke. <laughs> Was that a good summary? Was that a good summary? Any objections to... No, no, I will really, I will try to say what you really wanted to say, if there will be time. Okay, then. <laughs> Is Dr. Cyril O'Regan here? Yes, I am. Good, please. I want to make two different sets of comments, and I'll divide them sort of in order of the speakers. Uh, I take it that what we have experienced is the monstrosity of the theologian, the prophetic theologian, and the monstrosity of the heteroglossic philosopher. I will, unlike Zizek, not have the inability to end, but the inability to begin. Uh, nonetheless, sort of, uh, what I want to suggest is that we have two apocalyptic theologians, even if that is not necessarily the ascription uh, of Zizek. Uh, I want to, on the one hand, acknowledge their intertextual relationship to Hegel, both in terms of dialectic and in terms of apocalyptic. And I want to query and possibly challenge their self-ascription uh, in very different modalities, with very different reasons, as to why they should be considered as authentic representatives of Christian apocalyptic, the definite article, and why it would not be conceivable that either of them could be classed as Gnostic apocalypticists. So let me just try sort of and make some points to that particular effect. Intertextually then, and I have read The Monstrosity of Christ and not necessarily for uh, Joe Hill, I take it that you have something incredibly deep in common when you have Hegel in common when you're talking about the death of God. You can talk about the death of God in any number of ways, and you could certainly prioritize Nietzsche, and neither of you do it, at least not in terms of the process of argument and not in terms of the order of priority. You have apocalyptic versions of the Hegelian death of God. And in a certain sense, uh, Zizek is a repetition of a repetition of a repetition of Tom, who is a repetition of Blake and a repetition of Hegel. That is, there are two different things going on. On the philosophical level, obviously one is going to talk about an order of dialectic, and using Zizek's terms, that can be contrasted with respect to paradox. Of course, both of you realize you don't have exactly the same sense of Hegelian dialectic, but you have it going. You also have the theological correlative, and the theological correlative, of course, is kenosis, as both of you sort of have indicated. The apocalyptic vision, at least for Tom, is the self-negation of the divine and its movement from its self-possession to dispossession. Tom, of course, will also uh, parse kenosis in a way rather different than Zizek. That is, kenosis is the operation of its own recuperation. That is, that we are going to have the self-collecting of 
deity as other than the deity in which we began. That is, the father sort of indeed is dead, but the spiritual community is alive. So Hegelian recollection sort of is front and center with respect to this operation, which is better described as a pleurosis operation than, in fact, a canonic operation properly understood. With respect to Thomas' relationship to traditional Christianity, which he has spelled out so eloquently here and elsewhere, one of the ways in which you could think of Thomas vindicating secularity is he vindicates secularity by constitutively by the memory of the death of God. In other words, without the memory of the death of God, Secularity is not the kind of secularity of which he can approve. The kind of approval that Thomas will give is a kind of approval with respect to uh, the self-elevation of the divine to the place, the self-elevation of the human to the place that was once occupied by the divine. It is a reoccupation technique. Lastly, with respect to Thomas, uh, and we have had this dialogue going on for a number of years, as to what is the genre of Altaïs' apocalyptic. My assumption is that Thomas's denial that uh, he, he gives a version of Gnostic apocalypse is in fact a response before the fact to myself. Thomas's argument is that given uh, Hegel's and Romanticism and all the other kinds of cultural discourse that approve a world as world, one could not possibly um, be persuaded that his particular version is Gnostic because on this assumption, Gnosticism is dualistic. Um, Gnosticism is going to have an eternal temporal split and so forth. But what if you argue that that is based upon an improper reading of Gnostic texts? What if you argue that Gnostic texts themselves have the negative capability precisely for that kind of affirmation and that the self-saving feature is in fact the feature? If that's the case, then I'm afraid Thomas is not quite off the hook. Now to Zizek. Zizek's Hegel is rather different. The monstrosity of Christ, I think, makes that perfectly plain. Dialectic is different insofar as dialectic is not recuperation. Kenosis is different insofar as it cannot be pleurosis. Thomas's Divina Commedia, in which so that we have the self-becoming of God with the self-becoming of the human, that Divina Commedia, as a matter of fact, is obliterated, and we have the comic as such. So I take it that that sort of announces the difference. A question to Zizek, and I have two, is what is the power of the genealogy of the death of God with respect to your own hallowing of the secular, your own critique of the secular secular, and your demand that the secular sort of should at least allow the role of religion? Is this, in terms of the genealogy, functioning as Benjamin's aura? Do we actually have then something sort of to hallow, in fact, the hollow? So what role is religion playing with respect to identification of the secular? My last query will have got to do not so much with respect sort of to your use of Chesterton, probably which I would protest against, but look at the content of that you brought forward. Chesterton is looking at Job. And the God of Job looks as if this God is an incompetent, the one who is overwhelmed. 
And you're arguing, and very nicely arguing, that the ultra-orthodox Chesterton is heterodox by other means, and he's a god theologian by other means, and Zizekian by other means. But let me give you another textual site. So if, this, if Chesterton is apocalyptic and he provides a literary code for your apocalyptic, uh, let me recall the Gospel of Truth, one of the most famous Gnostic texts, and see how you would get exactly the same result. It is true that Gnostic texts usually start out uh, in terms of the presupposition of a pleromatic realm, none greater than which can be thought. But we all know the world comes into being and the world is a messy and messy chaotic world. Actually, just exactly the kind of world that Chesterton describes when he's talking about Job or the book of Job describes. But we know, of course, in Gnostic texts that there is, in fact, a God who is incompetent and that incompetent God is a demiurge. So, how about this, Zizek? You're a Gnostic by taking away the alpha and omega of the narrative of a Gnostic text and leaving the in-between. Thank you, Dr. Reagan. Do you want to respond briefly or do we go to the next speaker? Briefly. Let's go. Yeah, go, ahead. go to the next speaker. I would love to. I mean, but what I'm afraid is that then I will be in my Fidel Castro yes. mood and we will. Uh... Adam Costco. I'd like to begin by saying that I'm very personally gratified to see this panel occurring because at the end of uh, my book, Zizek and Theology, I claim that um, among theologians, Zizek is most like Altizer. And so we have a public demonstration of my correctness. Uh, and who would not enjoy seeing that? Um, but um, rather than address directly what they've said, I I would like to address kind of the elephant in the room, which is the obvious question. How can we talk about the death of God when there's all this religion and resurgence of it and all this? Um, and in order to do that, I would like to, although I do um, advocate uh, kind of the more expansive vision of the death of God that uh, Altizer and Zizek do in their different ways, um, kind of ground it historically in the modern era, which is the specifically modern experience of religion, as um, what I would call the drama of the soul with its God. And that historically, um, the death of God first took place as a loss of that experience, a sense that, um, that it was no longer meaningful. Um, it had no more purchase. Um, and I think that in this context, uh, the idea that the death of God has been disproven by events um, is missing the point. That um, we need to look at the unavailability of this experience of the drama of the soul with its God. Uh, the loss of the realm that in the modern era had been known as distinctively religious. This loss doesn't entail the, the uh, eradication of everything that had been uh, defined as religious. 
Um, and I don't think that any serious thinker of the death of God has expected such a, queen, a clean sleep, uh, sweep to occur. Um, instead, what has occurred is a displacement of the energy that had once been directed toward that. Um, I'm, I'm going to say there are two paths that this energy took. The first is um, directed toward uh, basically the same realm as classically modern religion in the form of self-fashioning or spirituality. And what is at stake here is not really anything like God at all, but rather the human self and its development, growth, and health, um, even when it proceeds by way of traditional religious exercises like yoga or something. Um, another direction that energy can go is toward a certain political tribalism of the religious right type. Um, this version is also directed towards the same general intimate or private realm that old-time religion was addressed, but instead of seeking the cultivation of individual excellence, it seeks to cultivate life as such and to relegate the means, sexuality, by which life is engendered. Once again, there is nothing like God at play here. Instead, there is an attempt to subordinate women in order to gain control of their reproductive power and also to try to police any form of sexuality not directed toward reproduction. None of this strictly requires religious justification, even if arguments from religious authority are used in, in uh, practice. Uh, this whole regime of sexual regulation based on reproduction was already proposed by Plato in the laws, Plato, um, of course, being completely ignorant of Leviticus, Romans, or the Quran. The second version of religion after the death of God could be called cultural in the strict literal sense of cultivating or growing human beings, and its natural affinity with nationalism should therefore come as no surprise. Sexuality is, of course, not the only thing on the agenda. In the U.S., for instance, there is a question of evolution or prayer in schools. But notice how closely both questions are tied to children and the role of education in maintaining the continuity of a certain cultural identity. This religion is a distinctively secular and new form of religion, one that is aimed firmly and exclusively at shaping our shared world. It is a religion that implicitly recognizes the death of God insofar as God can no longer take care of himself. It is not enough for the faithful remnant to hold fast to God's laws and let the rest go to hell. What's more, no strong concept of God has any real credibility. For instance, the seemingly interminable battle between predestination and free will has been decisively won by the free will crowd, I would say, but not through superior argumentation. Rather, it's through attrition. Who really cares about predestination anymore? Here's a theologian of predestination. Okay. Um, <laughs> certainly there are some, but they're a dwindling remnant. Um, in short, both what we call secularism and what we now call religion are operating within the space cleared out by the death of God. What distinguishes them is not their form, religion versus secularism, but solely their content. On the one side, there is the technocratic management of capital and the spiritual exercises that help you to conform to it. On the other side, the regulation of sexuality and service of a tribal identity. Um, and the first step in defeating both may well to be to recognize that they are both competing on the same plane. Thank you. Adam Kotzko. And the next uh, speaker is Daniel Boskal-John.
I'm even taller. Is that better? Okay, great. Um, I'm just going to answer the, de- the question, whither the death of God, in five minutes or less, hopefully less. Um, the first question is, is in, this, in the form of the state, or my answer is in the form of the statement that we're still living in the time of the death of God. And I think that's apparent from uh, Tom's original confession of the death of God, is it being manifest in a series of repetitions. First in Blake, then in Hegel, then in Kierkegaard perhaps, onward, onward, onward. There's a series of repetitions, but they're meaningful repetitions. Each repetition gains something. Or it has historically, a new dimension is added, something is given to it that expands it beyond what it was. So, why is there the question that you asked originally? Why do we have to even question whether there is the death of God or whether that's still functional in this day and age? The answer is because the language of God has lost its meaning and power. The word God is a symbol no longer communicates as clearly. You hear it manifest not in vain, God is dead, there is no taking of the name in vain, but emptily, vacuously. OMG, I can't believe I just said that. You know, in those, in those sorts of situations, it's a symbol or a shorthand with no meaning or power anymore. Do you have something, Tom? No, no. no. Okay. You were leaning forward. Um, so, but what manifests is in terms of two different crises of despair that still let us know that we're in the time of the death of God. The first crisis of despair is that of meaninglessness. And this is the one that's been uh, brought to us courtesy of post-modernity. It's a series of just shifting terms or deferred meanings that go forward and back and on and forth where we're confronted by the meaninglessness. On the one hand, it's powerful and attractive. People want to revel in it. It's possibility, and it's the possibility that's opened up by the death of God. Without a keystone name in place, without the ontotheological, metaphysical being in, in centered in everything, we can have those kinds of possibilities. But it can open up a crisis of despair, which can, in turn, meaningfully still connect people to the dead body of God invoked by Altizer earlier this afternoon. The second main crisis is that of meaningfulness. And this is what uh, Professor Zizak instructed us about. It's the meaningfulness of getting a cup of coffee. I can't just drink coffee. I have to consider every single ramification of my cup of coffee. If it's fair trade coffee, if it's shade-grown coffee, how much they are paid to pick the coffee, how much the baristas are paid, how much I tip the barista. I can't just buy a cup of coffee. I can't just drink coffee in good or bad conscience. Everything I do is meaningful. My clothing is meaningful. What I drive is meaningful. There's no empty action anymore. And it's a crisis. It's paralyzing, and it's just as paralyzing as meaningfulness. In Kierkegaardian language, they're the twin crises of possibility and necessity. And both, as they did for Kierkegaard, still open up an access to the God who has died, but a God who still has power. So, that's about it. We still need the language of the kingdom of God. Um, and I think that's important because it reminds us that there's something beyond the crises of despair. And when the kingdom of God arrives, it will do so in a new language. The, the notion of God doesn't just go away. The death of God just doesn't disappear. It doesn't go out of currency. It's more like Heidegger's work of art. It's a true occurrence. And in order to be displaced, we need a new language to come, a new prophet to arise, a new form of painting, a new economic system. We need something that will reconfigure or inaugurate a new age. And that age might not use the language of God. It might use something different. But it will be something that resets or redefines the terms of our very existence. It, in turn, will probably also perpetuate a series of crises. It's not like that life will get magically better, but it will become different, and it will be a time when we know that the kingdom of God has arrived. 
Thank you. Thanks, Dan, Basco, John. Clayton Crockett. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Slavoj, uh, for doing this. I claim also that the death of God is the precondition for any serious theological thinking today. And I honor both Altizer and Zizek, although my understanding of the death of God and what it means is slightly distinct from each. And in fact, more along the lines of Gilles Deleuze, Indifference and Repetition, where he says that the, tra- the Kantian transcendental philosophy introduces the form of time into thought as such, and then this pure and empty form in turn signifies indissolubly, indissolubly the death of God, the fractured I, and the, fra- and the passive self. Uh, Altizer and Zizek are important because they suggest that radical theology is not external but internal to philosophy, a cicero within the thought of, among others, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, Lacan, etc. And in terms of the currency, the currency of the death of God, I would affirm Carl Schmitt's claim in a letter that today everything is theology except what declares itself to be such, and nothing is more theological than money and capital. And here I refer to Philip Goodchild's recent book, A Theology of Money. Today, capitalism is imploding in on itself, having reached global limits of growth, including resource extraction, debt accumulation, and atmospheric emissions. We are witnessing the collapse of the largest asset bubble ever inflated, and we are on the verge of an unprecedented depression because we're running out of cheap energy and thus cannot fuel another bubble. I think that we need a materialist theology that can think life in terms of self-organization, iterative chaotic complexity that is not background dependent and views energy conversion as the essence of life uh, in a non-dualistic way as both spiritual and material at once. And also, finally, in a way that moves us beyond thermodynamics. Thank you. Thanks, Clayton Crockett. The next speaker is Andrew Haas. Here's a Scotchman. 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 I'm conscious, Lisa, that we are already beyond our time, uh, and there's no dialogue going on here. I'm I'm willing to canonically empty my questioning to invite dialogue again, if if we want to, or I could continue to pose a question. Um, but I, I throw that out as, as a way to try and get dialogue going if our speakers want to respond to anything so far. Thank you. <laughs> Response? What? Would you like to respond? You'll start. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. okay. I will try to be. Yeah. You see, there is... Sorry. There is one problem here. First, I'm deeply, really, I'm not, this is not uh, this kind of rhetorical concession and so on, patronizing. I'm really deeply honored, affected by these questions, and this is the big problem. Now, to properly answer just one of them would have taken another session and so on and so on. It would be now nice if we were allowed just to close the door here, the faithful ones, the inner party circle, how should I put it, no, and go on. Then dialogue. Yes, I totally agree. I would like to begin with the last very generous thank you point about dialogue. Uh, But I cannot resist a provocative uh, observation. Are we aware how 
rarely dialogues really function. I think mostly it's, especially when you appear to, to listen to the other and so on, I which is why the more I'm getting old, the more I like dialogues, but the late dialogues by Plato, you know where one guy talks all the time, and then every five minutes the other guy says something like, by Zeus, you are right, so it is, and so on. No, the, don't, I mean, I'm not saying dialogues, genuine dialogues, don't happen. But, you know, please, this is a true traumatic encounter, is a very rare thing. So, to be really short, one of the focal points in the first and second intervention was this problem, Hegel, Kierkegaard, and so on. I'm so sad I don't have time now to go into this just to maybe arouse, if you are not too, uh, not too despaired at my... Uh, at, my, uh, at my overproductivity, that now, being tired of those political books, I am in the middle of writing, already almost finishing, a seven, eight hundred pages book on Hegel and religion. And there I will go in detail into this, and my thesis is the following one, to put it very simply, that don't dismiss Hegel to easily. Something happens in Hegel which is not yet really thought even today. And this really traumatic dimension of Hegel is covered up by this, in a truly Freudian sense, Deck-Erinnerung, screen memory of this ridiculous Hegel that we all know and love. You know, Hegel, that idiot who thought he possesses absolute knowledge, he can read the mind of God, he can deduce, uh, develop the whole reality out of a self-movement uh, of a notion, and so on, and so on. I claim that, I claim that if anything, this famous post-Hegelian turn towards some kind of a hard, absurd, extra-rational, positive reality. It can be the reality of the will, as it is already in late Schelling and uh, Schopenhauer. It can be for Kierkegaard, this unique, individual, absurd fate. It can be for Marx, real, productive. But, but the movement is always the same. That is to say, as if the idealist tradition reaches its absurd point in this purely self-referential, uh, sophistic ratiocination by Hegel, and then we need a real foundation. I think we don't. I think Hegel is still an enigma, which is why I'm tempted to say uh, that, uh, that with my all, I mean, I love Kierkegaard, but the way he relates to Hegel, he relates to this caricature of Hegel. There is another story to be told about this. Uh, as to the question of, uh, uh, I am very appreciative of the second intervention, there especially I feel almost physically the pain of not being able to respond fully, but uh, the only thing I would maybe disagree, and I mean this really, I don't play these academic games, you know, and I don't know how it is here, but in the UK, if you say, I totally agree with you, I just would put slightly a different accent. It means you are a total idiot or something like that. No, I really mean it, that I slightly disagree with that when you say the place of God reoccupied by man. Well, that, this kind of, again, uh, uh, Feuerbach or already humanism, and here I'm very critical of Marxism, is precisely what I want to avoid. 
My point is that this is why, and this would also answer the next question, why in secular universe, why the need to speak about theology, precisely this gesture I want to avoid, from the positivity of God to the positivity of man. I want something like a desperate, impotent split in himself, God, relating to no less desperate split in itself, whatever you put it, human being. And this is the Chesterton that I refer to. I tend to accept that criticism, but just I would like to state where I, my point, where I would have developed it. You know that the, the quote from Chesterton that, that I refer to in almost all my books is from his orthodoxy, where in a wonderful way he says something breathtaking. He says that in all other religions you of course course, have they relate to the non-believers, people who don't believe in God. Only in Christianity you have, of course, Chesterton uh, uh, re uh, refers to that unique point of Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthan, uh, Father, why you have them, that you have a point where God, as Chesterton puts it in his orthodoxy, for a brief moment, God himself doesn't believe in himself, becomes an atheist. And I think we shouldn't read this in a simple pseudo-Hegelian way of, okay, who of us doesn't have a moment of crisis, you doubt, but then son goes back to father, big happy family. No, something happens there. The loss, and this is also the lesson of Hegelian dialectics, I'm so sad I don't have uh, time to go into it. You know, the stupid reproach to Hegel, negativity, okay, things go bad, but when then, where does this miracle then come from the reproach to Hegel is that there is always a miraculous resolution, negation of negation. You made this point well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I got it, yeah. That, that uh, in Hegel uh, there is no resolution. It's just that you, kenosis in itself, you just shift the perspective and see that the kenotic movement is itself its own solution. Just two, three brief points. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Kotzko whom I also appreciate, of course, very much, when uh, he mentioned uh, this problem of sexual reproduction. Can you help me with the totally stupid, naive, maybe I'm here, primitive Balkan European? I never got it how Pope and other distinguished Catholics can claim that sex is human, properly human, when it's done for reproduction, not with a reproduction in view, but that if you do it just for lust and so on, it's animal. I'm sorry, but I think it's exactly the opposite. It's animals who do it just for reproduction. It's precisely when you are passionately in love, it's neither a reproduction, nor it's precisely that uh, something which originally was meant for reproduction becomes, as it were, a medium for something spiritual to appear. Humanity, that's the lesson of psychoanalysis, humanity emerges through sexuality being cut off from reproductive... Okay, but that's another story. Uh, fourth point, uh, the God we still... Be, uh, you know, again, my point would have been that don't buy this bullshit that we don't believe today. We are superstitious, we believe more than ever today. I don't have time to develop this, but we just pretend not to believe. As I said, we believe through the others, you know, like you don't believe in Santa Claus. You say, I'm not an idiot, uh, but I pretend to believe for my sons. Of course, if I ask your son, he will say, I'm not stupid to believe. I pretend not to disappoint. We believe through others more than ever. You see, that's how it can function. Nobody empirically has to believe, but we all believe, yes. It's good as long as you are at this level.
you would make me afraid if you would move to another level. Sorry. That's the last part. What it was said that capit about capitalism, I cannot emphasize also enough the Crockett, how important this topic is. If there is a lesson of the present financial crisis, is that uh, what was... Okay, I modestly... No, I just wanted to say that this present crisis is the crisis of capitalist belief. They openly said they had to spend over 1,000 billions to re-establish faith and so on. But that's another point, so I see to this brutal proto-fascist violence. And <laughs>